So when negotiating with a credit card company, be prepared. I'd even encourage practicing what you say with a script. Be patient and gracious in your exchange with the customer service rep, but also be persistent. In this episode of Getting Money Right, Leo and I are answering more of your questions directly from the blog, from our social media pages, and from anywhere else that you're emailing or sending or even asking us in person. We're here to serve you by answering your questions. So Leo, kick us off with the first question. Yeah, so the first question we have is, how do I negotiate with my credit card company? Oh, okay. How do I negotiate with my credit card company? Okay. So a friend of mine, her name is Diane Gonzalez, and she actually wrote a little guide on this. And so I'm going to use some of her notes. I thought it was really well done. So let's just pull right from that. Uh, She said the first thing that you need to do is take time to collect the information so that you can be in the best position possible to negotiate a new percentage interest rate with your credit card company. You want to come in prepared. You're going to call your credit card company. You're going to negotiate a new rate. You need to have information so that when you go to the table, you know some things. It's not just them dictating to you what's going to happen. Uh, So you're going to want to bring the current interest rate. Uh, how much you're currently paying, and how much you currently owe. Let them know that up front. Uh, the representative that you get get on the phone might not have that information right away, and so you can lay it out for them. You want to be able to talk about how long you've had the account open. If you've been a long-term customer, it lets you lets you have a little bit more negotiating power and leverage to say, hey, I'm thinking about leaving this company and looking for other options. Well, they're going to want to hold on to you. Uh, you can bring your FICO score, which lets them know uh, that you're a good risk or where you stand on the risk scale for them. And then you just set some expectations. You know, Do your research before you call. Find out what current credit card interest rates are in the market. And you could just Google, you know, what are some good credit card interest rates? And uh, you'll come up with a bunch of different lists of what credit cards are charging. And you know, it ranges from 15 to 18 to 22 to 29%. And you can just say, okay, here's what I would be able to get if I switched cards. This card over here is willing to pay me or allow me to pay 0% for the first six months. And so I'm thinking about switching. And that gives you a little bit of leverage and negotiating power when you sit down. Uh, You know, when you're researching and you're looking into this, you don't want to do a hard inquiry when you look into other credit options. Uh, You just kind of want to, you want to just do a little um, soft search. You don't want to actually apply because then it's going to hit your credit history and that's going to lead to a potential negative impact on your credit score. Leo, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's important that you come in and just feel confident that what you're doing is is a good thing. I mean, you're not asking them for something that they can't offer, and you're not asking them to be um, unreasonable with you. If you have been a good customer, if you've paid on time, if you've got good credit, and all the things are working for you, there's no reason for you to be paying the premium rate. They should treat you like a loyal customer. But credit card companies are not going to just give you things unless you ask. In fact, I've had a, the same credit card. My wife and I have had the same credit card for, oh gosh, we've been married almost 29 years. She had gotten the credit card before we got married. So it's going on 29 years. Wow. Uh, I'm a co-signer on it. She's the primary card holder. But we've used this credit card literally for the last th- close to 30 years now. And I've noticed literally just the other day, I was looking at my account statement, and I noticed the interest rate is over 20%. And that's just the, that's on uh, on regular purchases. On balance transfers, like 26%. Oh, now, wow. now, I would never pay that, and I haven't paid interest <laughs> in 24 years. 
But for someone that may have a balance on it, if I would have had a balance on it, I would have fought for that rate a long time ago. It would have never gotten that high. I would have fought for them to bring it down. But it just hasn't concerned me because, again, I don't pay interest rates. So they've slowly bumped it up. It didn't start at 20%. It started somewhere around 14%, if I remember correctly. And it just, over the years, has gone up without me even noticing it. So here's the thing, though. Because you have the ability to ask, and you should ask, keep the uh, conversation positive. You're coming in. You're not asking for something that's not reasonable. So stay positive. Uh, be patient because you're going to get somebody that may not have the authority to make that decision on the go. So you may have to to talk to several people to get to someone that can actually make a change. And then stay focused. Persevere. Don't give up. Just keep keep, keep trying. So go in with a win-win mentality. You, you've got nothing to lose by asking. And you both win when your credit card company gets to keep your business with a lower rate. They don't want to lose you. Just as you said, they're going to fight for you, especially if you're a good customer. So when negotiating with your credit card company, be prepared. I'd even encourage practicing what you say with a script. Be patient and gracious in your exchange with the customer service rep, but also be persistent. Yeah. And, you know, these credit card companies, they understand that sometimes seasons of life hit you hard and it can be really difficult. And their their long-term goal is to keep you as a customer paying interest. And so they would prefer to lower the interest rate for a while while you get back on your feet so that you can fully pay off the balance over time. Uh, they, they don't want you to fall into a state of being unable to pay for you know six months to a year to where you then become a bankruptcy risk. Mm -hmm. So if you call them early on in this process and you say, look, I, I notice that my rate is 22%. Uh, I know that I competitively could go into the market and get one at 10% or 0% for the first six months. You know, what can you do to help me stay a loyal customer? And you just put it back on them and you do it in a respectful way. But when they come back and say, well, we can lower it 3%, you say, no, I'm looking for 10%. And they say, well, we can give you 15. I understand. But what I'm looking for is 10%. Right. Well, the lowest we can go is 15. I understand. I'm going to go ahead and make a switch on my car. Wait, 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 come back. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, be gentle, be gracious, um, but, but be persistent. Yes. Don't roll over on them with the first thing they throw out. And then if they do give you something that you agree to, you want to make sure that they send you an email uh, so that it's in writing. Either they, they send you a letter note with a notice of the change in interest rate or that they send you an email, something on their company letterhead that says that they've agreed to make this change. And that's very easy to do. They've got the systems right there. And so there's no reason they shouldn't be able to send that to you right away. Um, and and it, should be, it should be an easy conversation. All right. Um, so you go through this process and, you know, you talk to them and it doesn't pan out. Uh, you know, they get they get frustrated and they say, no, you know, we're not going to help you. They look maybe at your FICO score and they say, hey, we don't think you can get a better rate anywhere else. So we're going to keep charging you what we can charge you. <laughs> they, might, they might call you bluff and that's OK. But if you prepared, if you've done the research and you know that uh, you can get a better deal, then at that point you can just do that. You can go through that conversation and, and say, Okay, if you if you don't want me to stay a customer, I'm going to go somewhere where I can get a better deal. Yeah, and if you go into Google and look up credit cards, there are you know hundreds of credit cards out there that are trying to get your business. And if you just look it up, you can find several options uh, that where you could switch it to something that would potentially offer you zero percent for the first uh, 180 days or first year. Now it depends on your credit score. You might not actually be able to get one of those, but it's important that you take the time and do some research. Uh, look based on your credit score, what the odds are of you getting one of these credit cards. Uh, you know, 
we're talking specifically about dealing with negotiating on credit cards and, and tacking credit cards. I'd love to see you um, just go pick up a side job and pay these credit cards off. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd rather see you not have these things in your wallet at all and just see this thing knocked out really quickly. But I understand that there are times where, where it seems like, hey, if I could just lower my interest for the next six months, I could pay these things off faster. It's not a bad plan, but I would prefer you get more aggressive and angry at the system as a whole and not pay anybody any interest because 10% interest is expensive. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Long term is not a good strategy to use credit unless you can pay it off every month. It's just a, a cost that unfortunately it does you no good. Yep. There's no benefit to you. Yeah. And and if you get to the place where you really um, can't afford to make your payments and make your mortgage payment, you know, I'd prefer that you make your mortgage payment sure. and you let these credit cards just kind of hang on the line for a while. Let's say that you're only earning $2,000 a month and uh, and maybe you just lost a job. And so you've picked up a small part-time job to earn 2000 And if your rent is 1000 I prefer you pay that 1000 and then buy some groceries for 300 and then make sure that your transportation is getting you to and from work and you know if that's another 200 bucks so you get up to that 2000 pretty quickly and I would just lay that out before your credit card companies too and say look uh, yeah, go to the website, pull off a, a budget form, uh, fill in all the details and send that to your credit companies and say, look, I want to make this payment. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to withhold from you because I do owe you. Uh, the, the honest conversation is you signed for that debt, but you've hit some hard times. And so now uh, you may miss some payments and I'd rather your credit get dinged and I'd rather your credit card companies get frustrated uh, than you miss a mortgage payment and potentially be evicted from your home. So priorities would be that housing, the food, then transportation, um, basic clothing, you know, so that if you're going on a job interview, uh, you look like uh, the kind of person they want to hire, but mm-hmm. basic clothing, you know, sure, I mean, sure. you can still use the jacket that you've had for the last five years. The style hasn't changed that much. Um, I think I've got jackets in my closet that go back. Oh, gosh, unfortunately, longer <laughs> than five years. Yeah, well, I, let's I, just leave that alone. I don't want to admit how long mine go back. <laughs> and but I, ca- I care for yeah. my clothes, so there's no reason to get rid of them if they're still in style. Yeah, and that's just it. I mean, you take care of your clothes. There's no reason. So, uh, anyway, that's a side note. But, but I'm, I'm, I want you to know, um, it's okay uh, if at the end of the day you're going through a tough time and you have to uh, end up having a tougher negotiation with your credit card company down the road, saying I can't make these payments because this is my income and these are my baseline expenses, and I would rather them get fussy than you be moved out of your house forcefully um, over time. Yeah, that's, that's such an important thing. I'm glad you brought it up, David, because I think people, when they get into a situation where they can no longer pay everyone, they're, they're scrambling. They're trying to figure out how can I please everybody. And, and if they start missing a payment here and there and they start getting calls, they kind of freak out and they don't know what to do. And I think what you just laid out is really important. I hope our listeners were paying attention that it's important that you do things in order of importance and what's most valuable. Credit card companies, if you bought something on a credit Uh, I don't know, maybe you took somebody out to dinner and maybe you bought a TV or something like that. Those things are are, are not as important as the roof of your head, is a transportation to your job. Uh, Yes, nobody wants their credit hurt. Nobody wants to deal with with unhappy customer service reps that are calling you for payments. But let's be wise about this. 
Take care of the things you need to take care of. Take care of your housing. Take care of your transportation, your food, your clothing before you satisfy the credit card bill. I've seen, unfortunately, too many people that will continue to make their credit card payments by borrowing from one credit card to pay another or taking out loan from friends and things like that just to keep their score from from being affected. And it just puts them in a bigger hole. Yeah. So it's important not ever to do that. And as David said, just get things in order. Get a budget in place. Get a one-pay budget that you can mail to your creditor together with a letter that says, hey, this is my plan. This is how I'm going to get out of this. But I hit a tough spot. Everybody does. They understand that. But if you're over-communicating your situation rather than waiting for them to chase you down, uh, you're going to have a lot more favor from them to help you through this season. Yeah. And if you can maintain some basic housing, uh, basic transportation and food and clothing, well, now you have the energy to go back into the workforce, mm-hmm. to go make more money and start back from scratch and really start to attack these debts down the road. So I'd prefer that you keep that stability in your life. Uh, now, that may require you moving out of your current residence and living with family for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, you literally may have to move back in with family, uh, rent a room from a friend inexpensively. Uh, you may have to utilize your social network. Uh, but you know what? Most people can keep renting where they're living most of the time, even if they have to take a much lower paying job than they initially had. Now, this depends on, you know, if you own a home and it's a $2,000 mortgage, maybe not. But if you're renting for a thousand bucks and you have two people in your house or three people in your house, then what you do, and I actually had this conversation with a friend the other day, then what you do is you call a, a house meeting And you bring everybody into the living room and you say, hey, as a family, we love living here. And as a family, we are in a financial bind right now. And, you know, maybe you're looking for full-time employment, but you haven't found that perfect job yet. And you you lost from a great job and now you're struggling with uh, not having anything. Well, if there's three people in the family and they all go get $10 an hour jobs at Walmart and Target and Taco Cabana and, you know, fill in the blank, you know, you you fill in the blank, anything, you know, something that hires and pays 10 bucks an hour. If each one of them work, uh, you know, 30 hours a week, that's $300 a week times three people. That's 900 bucks Mm -hmm. times four weeks. That's $3,600. That'll pay your rent for a while. So, so I'm not saying that everyone in the family will have to work for the next 10 years at $10 an hour. What I'm saying is that you can maintain your basic level of housing on $10 an hour with two people going into the workforce. Uh, That's actually $10 an hour turns out to be $20,000 a year. If you're working 40 hours a week, times 50 weeks, uh, that's 40 grand for two people making 10 bucks an hour. You can live on that. Yep. So, so I'm telling you, swallow your pride. If you're in a really, really tough place, swallow your pride, uh, get a job that doesn't pay as much as your last job did until you're ready. And until that new job calls you back and you get paid 40 or 50 or 60, or hopefully, you know, 200,000, <laughs> you know, whatever the situation is. So I'm just telling you, it's okay. Uh, to prioritize the housing and the transportation first. Yeah, that's good. All right, let's uh, move on to the next question. Should I cash out or roll over my 401k? Oh man, this is a really good question. Okay, so uh, this happens when you're leaving a company that you work for and your 401k is now gonna be staying there. You know, you're leaving, but the 401k is staying. And so you have a question, should I leave that money there? 
should I cash it out and take all that money home with me and just have a spending spree? <laughs> um, you know, should I uh, create a new account and transfer it over? So there's really three options. Uh, the first is to say, I'm just going to leave it with my old company. Some of the, the problems with this is that you don't work there anymore. So you don't necessarily want to be dealing with that HR department anymore. Oftentimes you have a limited amount of mutual funds inside of that retirement plan or the fees may be high. There's a few scenarios where you have a ton of options and the fees are super low and it might make sense to leave it. Yeah. But the majority of the time, I would say go ahead and do what's called a direct transfer. Direct transfer. I'm saying this three times slowly. Direct transfer because the direct transfer takes that money directly from your former employer and sends it directly to a new place. And that new place, you could directly transfer it to your new employer if they have a 401k plan. Um, again, if you're in a 401k, you might have limited options and high fees. So that might not be the best choice. You might actually want to directly transfer it over to an IRA, an individual retirement account. So the 401k, that's a, an employer retirement account. But you, as an individual living in the United States, uh, you can set up your own individual retirement account and you can do that at a brokerage. Google, how do I open an IRA? How do I open an IRA at a brokerage? And it'll come up with a ton of options. Vanguard, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, T. Rowe Price, TD Ameritrade, all, all of these people. You can open your own individual retirement arrangement there. I personally love Vanguard because the fees are low and they've got a lot of options, but any one of these will work great. So you take it over, you call, you call one of those companies and you say, I'm about to do a direct transfer into a new IRA with you. Will you help me communicate with my HR department? And then you call your HR department and you let them know the new company that you'll be transferring it to. You connect the dots and again... You do a direct transfer. <laughs> yep. um, you know, the other option is that uh, your old 401k, they send you the money and they just send you a check that you could literally take out yourself and spend. But if they do that, they're required to hold back 20% because money that's taken out of a 401k before 59 and a half comes with a 10% penalty. So off the bat, you owe 10%. And then you have to pay your federal income and state income taxes on it. And so they hold back 20%. At least, sometimes at, more than that. Yeah, at least 20%. And then um, that money, if you're not able to make it up with your own personal cash when you transfer it into this new account, then you've got to pay that penalty and those taxes on it. And so it's much better. Don't cash it out. It's much better to do that direct transfer. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, I think you are right, though. Sometimes, depending on what company uh, you had and what their options are, there might be some good funds yes. in there yes. that are very low, and maybe you've done really well with it. So it's not an automatic that you should do it, but certainly look at what other options out there is. And as David mentioned, when you look at these other IRA options and brokerages, if you find one that has better track record, has lower fees, yeah, why not? You, you've just been given the option to manage your own account, whereas in a 401k with an employer, you're kind of stuck. Whatever options they have, that's all you've got. Maybe 15 to 20 options, that's all you've got, whereas yep. now the whole market's open to you. Yeah, so I did this when I left uh, my previous career. I worked five years as a marketing manager for a forensic engineering company. 
loved it. Great job. Uh, but I had five years of 401k building up Mm -hmm. and they said, Hey, what do you want to do with this thing? I looked at the fees. The fees were a little bit too high in my opinion. And so, and it wasn't just that the options were limited. When I looked at what I could invest in, they gave me like 15 options. Whereas if I went to something like Vanguard, I could have a hundred options. If I went to Fidelity, I could have a thousand options and be a little bit overwhelmed by the number of options. (laughs) That's so true. And and it's the same with, you know, all these other great brokerages. Uh, You know, they're all wonderful. I went with Vanguard. I did a direct transfer, called them and said, hey, get ready to receive this money. And they set up an account for me and it's free. You know, it's easy. It's not a difficult process, but you need to know those magical words. I'm ready to do a direct Direct transfer. transfer. (laughs) Absolutely. It's too painful not to do it any other way, and it's too costly. So don't don't do that. Yep. So um, Leo, here's a ooh, this is a tough question that came in. Um, my parents are financially irresponsible. How can I help them? Hmm. That is a tough question. You want to answer that one? Oh, I don't know that I want to handle that <laughs> one. Okay, Leo. okay. I'll, I'll start. Maybe you can help with it. Well, first, first, let me say this. Please remember, no matter how irresponsible your parents may be with their money, they are your parents. So honor them. Be kind as you discuss this topic with them. They may feel overwhelmed. They may feel embarrassed, shame over what their what their situation is. Or they may just be responsible. I don't know. But honor them as you go through this process. Don't forget that they're your parents. It also may be difficult for you uh, to understand, but they may not want your advice. You know, they're adults. Yep. <laughs> they don't have to listen to what you have to say, even if you do have more wisdom than they do about finances. So don't get offended. They're adults and they should make their own financial decisions. Now, if their financial irresponsibility causes you or your family financial hardships, you may need to get a bit more forceful. But realize that until a person has been told by a court that they lack the capability of managing their own finances, there's not much you can do. They're allowed to continue their financial misbehavior as long as they want. They can take out loans, they can take out mortgages and so on, but there's not much that you can do. So Although there are some things you can do uh, legally, it, it, when it gets to that point, really, the court is on their side. They're going to have to prove yeah. that they're not, uh, they're not capable yeah. of managing their own finances. Yeah. I mean, your parents, unless there are some cognitive issues mm-hmm. where they literally cannot manage, these are their choices and they get to make them. And, and the sad part is, is they're going to have to feel the consequences of some bad decisions. And you can offer help, but you have to tread lightly. Yes. Because these are the people that, that gave you life. You know, <laughs> yes. they raised you um, from being a baby. They've seen you spit up, you know, on, on the cloth. You know, they have, they've seen you crash your tricycle. And those are the memories that go through their mind when you're trying to tell them what they should do with their money. Right. And so you need to be very cautious. You know, it it depends on the relationship you have with your family. Sometimes you can sit down and maybe you have some some really good advice that's going to help them. But a lot of times the situation is not just surface level. And so you offering surface level advice, oh, well, just, you know, pay off your debt, get a better job. Uh, You know, you really ought to just work harder. You know, if you're offering surface level advice, you're actually going to come off more offensive Mm. than if you take the time to sit down hear their story, hear what's going on. And and a lot of times you'll know some of the intricate details just from growing up in that household. I mean, you'll, you'll know a little bit more of what's going on, but let them tell you, let them share what they feel comfortable sharing. And they might not, they may decide, Hey, you know, we'll get our advice elsewhere. And 
that's a hard place to be, but that's what it's going to be. The one thing you can do to kind of sweeten the pot, and and again, this might be tough to pull off, but you could offer some financial incentives or some rewards for them to grow in their financial literacy. So you might say, hey, we would love to pay for your date nights for the next two months. I know things, I know times are hard, so we'll buy your, your next two months of date nights if you'll also take this online financial course or if you'll read this financial book. You know, you could, you could offer to do something for them, but realize that could also be taken the wrong way. They could think that you're trying to manipulate them. They'd be like, why don't you just give us the cash? You know, we're your parents. We raised you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is one of those things we've really got to tread lightly. Yeah, I agree. It's it's family matters and these kind of things, especially when you're dealing with your parents, can be very tricky. Now, if your parents are dealing with some early dementia or some mental infirmity, there are some options. You can get a power of attorney and you can work on an arrangement to let you or someone else manage their money. But it has to be with their agreement if they're able to make that, that determination. Um, but if they don't agree, you just have to honor them for who they are, your parents, and then do your best to approach this relationally. Don't approach it from, hey, you're doing this wrong. Let me show you how to do it right, or you should be doing this and that. It's not dictating. It's offering options. I think a lot of times, all of us feel that when we're not managing money well, we feel like we're the only ones that are dumb enough not to, to figure this thing out. And they may feel that. They may feel, as I said earlier, they may feel shame and embarrassment over the situation. And if you approach it the right way and honor them while you do it, I think it's it's possible for them to humble themselves enough to say, you're right, we need help. And uh, that's a good thing. You coming alongside with the right attitude and helping them to, to make those decisions that unfortunately they're not able to make on their own, or maybe they just didn't save. They're not prepared for the, the season yeah. of life and some tough choices have to be made, meaning they may be stuck where they can't live in their own house. They mm-hmm. may have to sell that house and move in with you or find different type of housing that's cheaper. And there's just no easy way to go through that. That's why keeping the relationship intact, being very thoughtful about how you do it, involving a third party if necessary. Sometimes it's important to have someone else walk them through this rather than you as their child coming in and trying to manage the money. Maybe you find a financial coach that can come in and help them manage through that situation. And that person is more likely to get more traction with them anyway. Because yep. they're going to listen to that person probably more so than you. They're going to divulge more of the information to that person than you, they will to you. And it just gives you more possibility for success. Yeah, I've seen that actually um, in the church. Uh, that I work at, we have a team of financial coaches and somebody came in saying that they needed a coach to meet with their parents. And I said, well, you know, you you can't really uh, request on your parents' behalf. Mm -hmm. But if your parents come to us and ask for a coach and you encourage them to sit down with a coach, you know, why not? And so the children were actually able to get their parents connected with a coach and they were able to encourage the parents to go request it and it was set up, and uh, and I'm thinking of a particular case. This set of people that I know have been working with one of our coaches for the past year and a half and helping hold them accountable, track their expenses. So maybe you don't have a church in the area or maybe a, a community like that where you could get free help like that. That's okay. You know, if you have the financial resources, maybe you pay a financial coach to meet with your parents, and, and you offer that and say, hey, well, I'd love to help set you up with this coach. But 
you know, you've also got to set some firm boundaries. If they're not willing to do what needs to be done, if they're not willing to cut the expenses or change their lifestyle, you can't fund that right. um, bad behavior. That's and so point. you have to set some healthy boundaries and maybe let them feel some of the pain of their decisions. Yeah. And the other thing is uh, you may have to step in and help in an emergency, but yeah. be very clear that this is a one-time situation. And unless they're willing to embrace some accountability uh, and Again, if they're not able to manage this well, to even give up some of that responsibility over to you, it's not unlikely for a son or a daughter to manage their parents' finances later on in life, especially as they get to that age where it's just difficult for them to remember everything. And it's a good idea for them to release that over to them. It's not that it's, I would never recommend that you take over completely and do everything for them, but maybe you just help them to create some boundaries. Maybe you say, okay, here's the money that you're going to use for food, and this is what you're going to use. I'll pay the bills for you, and you just help them that way. It, it really is very unique depending on your parents' age, ability, all of that. But as David said, it's important that you don't come in, either take over or enable them or give them money without any consequences or any accountability because that's just not going to be a good situation long term. Yeah, this is your family. And so you are responsible to help serve them and help keep them, uh, protect them, you know, help, help them long term. It's family. You know, you, you do want to serve them. And so don't be selfish. Don't have this mindset that I'm not going to help them just because they made a few mistakes. You know, you really want to walk with them through this process and serve them the best that you can. I believe that it's not the government's responsibility to take care of your parents. I believe it's your responsibility. Now, you're going to have to to set healthy boundaries on unhealthy behaviors. And so you can't invite craziness into your home or you can't fund somebody making terrible life decisions. But your heart should be, how can I serve my mother and my father, uh, these people who raised me, how can I serve my family and help them and do everything you can and take that responsibility as a family relationship uh, and see how far you can go? Well, we want to thank you for joining us for this Getting Money Right episode. Would you please do us a huge favor and subscribe to our podcast? You can find us on iTunes and Google Play Music. You can also listen on Stitcher, CastBox, or your favorite Apple or Android app. Subscribing will automatically update you with the latest episode each week, and more importantly, it will make it easier for more people to find and benefit from this podcast. We'd also appreciate a five-star review, if you wouldn't mind. Please take a moment to do that. And last, please share this episode on your favorite social media platform with your friends and family. You can find the show notes on this episode and more content and resources at leosabo.com. We look forward to having you join us next time so that together, we we can can keep keep getting getting money right. right. When you have that conversation with your creditor, you want to come prepared. You want to know your current interest rate and the amount that you owe, how long the account has been open, and what your current FICO score is. You need to have information so that when you go to the table, you know some things. It's not just them dictating to you what's going to happen. 